Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello and welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. Washington, D.C. Senators unveil federal marijuana legalization bill to mixed reviews, with the White House remaining significantly opposed. Marijuana advocates have been waiting anxiously for this day. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden of Oregon and Senator Cory Booker, the Democrat of New Jersey, have released their draft bill to federally legalize marijuana. But the issue has touched off a number of controversies and the White House support remains in question. Beyond ending decades-long prohibition of cannabis, the proposed legislation contains a litany of other provisions to promote social equity facilitate research and repair the harms of criminalization. The three senators unveiled the 163-page bill at a press conference this past week. This is monumental because, at long last, we are taking steps in the Senate to right the wrongs of a failed war on drugs, Senator Schumer said. I was the first Democratic leader to come out for the legislation on marijuana, and I will use my clout as a majority leader to make this a priority for the Senate. Of note, the legislation was not in included as part of the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package that the Senate Democrats agreed to earlier this week. With Schumer saying in the press conference, we don't have the votes necessary at this point to pass cannabis legalization, even with a reduced 50-vote threshold under the fiscal maneuver. Still in Washington, D.C., Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, vows to block marijuana banking until the Senate passes comprehensive legalization. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey said this week he will lay himself down to block any other senators who seek to pass marijuana banking legislation before the body approves the comprehensive cannabis reform like the federal legalization bill he newly unveiled along Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Over in the House, meanwhile, the lead sponsor of the cannabis banking bill says that he agrees with the need for a broader policy change, but feels that Congress should still advance a more incremental reform as soon as possible for public safety reasons. During the press conference, long-anticipated Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, Schumer, Booker, and Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden were asked about whether the chamber should pursue a separate House-passed bill that would simply protect banks that service state legal marijuana businesses from being penalized by federal regulations if the trio cannot get enough support to advance their legalization legislation. Our final story comes also from Washington, D.C., where President Biden remains opposed to marijuana legalization. White House says minutes after the senators unveil their latest bill. Minutes after Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and colleagues unveiled a much-anticipated draft marijuana legalization bill on Wednesday, the White House press secretary reiterated that President Joe Biden remains opposed to the reform. However, she notably said that the president would be encouraged by efforts to advance a more incremental reform, such as the decriminalization process, as he pledged to do as part of the campaign. 
campaign. Nothing has changed. There is no new endorsement of legislation to report today, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said at a briefing after being asked about the new draft legislation bill. Advocates have been waiting eagerly for the release of the Canadian legislation bill that Schumer and Finance Committee Chairman Robert Wyden and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, have been working on for months. That finally happened this past week, but the press secretary's comments signal that even if the measure advances through Congress, it may face serious opposition from the president. This has been your America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Let's see who's joining the conversation this week. Joining us today in our Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape, presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data, is Gary Allen, the CEO. He's going to talk about consumer trends and what businesses need to do to make sure they're maximizing their opportunities. Next is a report from Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association, late-breaking on the new legislation that was introduced by Chuck Schumer in the Senate this week on decriminalizing cannabis. Next, our lifestyle reporter, Rich Walkoff, will be talking with Roberto Stefanano of Villa Parsadio Farms in Humboldt County, where the initial move to legalize cannabis in California took place. Our last segment is with our doctor on call, cannabis doctor on call, Dr. Joseph Tischler, who talks about the changing needs of people coming out of the pandemic, what they're buying and what their needs are. So let's join the conversation. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation. And today we're dealing with our segment called Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape, presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data. And joining us today from New Frontier Data is the CEO. And um, Gary is going to join us and talk about trends in the consumer. So, Gary Allen, welcome to the conversation. Dan, thanks so much for having me again. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. So let's talk about what's what's happening that are significant in your mind. Well, I think some of the significant things that are happening, you know, in the cannabis within the cannabis industry, everybody's a buzz about you know weed maps and and the you know the Dutch and Leaf Logic and Green Bits co- combinations and and these are all actually very good things for the consumer. Um, but with the I think what people are missing, what, what what's really missing in the understanding of the consumer is currently, you know, there's three major challenges, you know, for for consumer engagement and consumer understanding. Product manufacturers and retailers they struggle to differentiate themselves in the consumer engagement process or or, or to the consumers and, and fold themselves into the consumer journey. Market research companies like, like New Frontier Data, consumer marketing companies, lack you know the, we aren't producing as as an industry. We're not producing enough in, in information about how to engage with these consumers. Uh, there are a number of, of fine companies out there that are talking about consumer performance, and in one of the challenges of looking at only looking at what retailers have sold last month, and and which consumers are buying or you know are contributing to those performance numbers you miss you miss that that white space and in that white space is where retailers product manufacturers and again uh, brands that's where they need to compete uh, and, the, and currently with the chaos that's going on with consolidation nobody's really focused on and everybody seems to be very focused on on helping that retailer truly understand the audience that lives around their retail shop, 
profiles of those audiences uh, and the products uh, that, that 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 those audiences prefer and 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 really help build the consumer engagement at the retail location. Gary, in our in our last conversation that was not on the air, but we talked, you were talking about this very issue, and you said to me, and I I don't want to quote the percentage, I'll let you tell me. What percentage of the local market around the dispensary does a dispensary actually get today? So New, New Frontier Data is in this, and the segment's promoted by us, so it's sponsored by us, so I don't mind promoting us a little bit. But um, over the last six months, and because of our new Equio release, uh, New Frontier Data looked at every single retailer and their foot traffic and the profiles of that foot traffic, so 100% of the market. And what we found is the single largest retailer in the market has less than 20% market share of their local physical market. So, for example, if the retailer sees 2,000 2000 visitors in any given month, the most likely likely outcome or, or, or result of our analysis for that particular retailer is that, you know, there is you know, 10,000 to 100,000, 50,000, sorry, would be the number, 50,000 um, possible consumers. And so what we're finding is in, in, really, in really crowded spaces in California, in Colorado, in Oregon, where there are many, Las Vegas, where there are many, many dispensaries, you know, some of these dispensaries, for example, in Vegas, are, are you know monstrously large. They have a huge amount of inventory, but they they they're in effect in a bare knuckle boxing match with the dispensary down the street on getting their foot traffic, and they're not winning it. Um, some of these are very successful, and so if below twenty percent can make below twenty percent market penetration or you know uh, market share can make a retailer successful. Imagine what 50% market penetration or market share would make that dispensary. So what, I, what I'm uh, – thank you for that. Uh, it was very helpful to me. What, what I'm still struggling with, Gary, is um, with, without you providing the data, uh, I don't see how these dispensaries can make long-term plans and and realize what's going on in their own market – and what's likely to happen? I, I I don't know how they operate. Yeah, so I think that's a really that's a really valid point. And listen, I don't want to paint the picture that retailers don't know how to run their business. Of course they do, right? Um, but I do I, I do submit to the market that in a mature market, in a mature retail market, we look at you know let's say clothing store or, 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 or shoe shop or, or bakery. Uh, in a mature market, you already have an understanding of the consumer, right? There are, there are hundreds of consumer reports that are out there um, mm-hmm. that some then direct marketing association produces, you know, you know, tens of reports every year on every different vertical. Um, and so as a mature market, understanding what how how my inventory sold last month is invaluable the interesting the interesting challenge for the cannabis industry is that even in a 7 year old market like colorado it's still an emerging market there is still about about 70% of the consumers 
are still sitting on the sidelines, right? The, the probable consumers. And so by, by only looking at my POS system and seeing how my inventory performed for me last month, that gives you half the story. Right. The other half has to be consumer acquisition, right? The cost of that consumer acquisition. And it also has to be then what is the eventual lifetime value of the consumer once I get them into my store. And these are things that, that are, are starting to emerge over this last few months is really important. The larger MSOs come, are coming at, at it first because they have bigger budgets, but it's really important that the market pay attention to what is, again, that white space that they're going to compete in. Who are those consumers? How do I on-ramp them into the consumer journey? And then how do I interact with them during the initial education and awareness phase during that consideration or that purchase phase and of the Holy Grail, how do I make them a loyal customer? Right. You know, you're, you, you mentioned that uh, you're a sponsor and you are, and you, you can talk a little bit about your company, which you've done very well. I, I, I look at it from the, from a standpoint that, that uh, I own this, this show and I know for, for a fact that there are a lot of people in this business, Gary, who remember the days when there were lines around the block to buy your product, and you didn't have to do any of the things that you're talking about in the new paradigm of how they're going to succeed in business. And I think in many cases, they're ill-prepared to do that. Yeah, so I was, I was talking to – it's funny you say that exact example because I was talking to a very large private equity investor in the industry – the other day, um, and his one of one of their portfolio companies is a brand accelerator, and we put together uh, we've put together a prepackaged product for this brand accelerator, so that people are able you know the, the companies that are trying to build consumer brands are able to come in, grab our data, understand the consumer, understand the location, understand proclivity to purchase, think you know really nuanced and sophisticated data. That doesn't actually cost a lot of money, but it is absolutely available. And one of the yes. things I said to the gentleman is that five years ago, the acronyms THC and CBD were a marketing scheme. If I put THC on a label or I put CBD on a label, people were going to buy it because they had no choice. Now, in the transition from nascency right, to operation and to growing, this market has to understand that tr that brand the building a brand awareness, building a, a brand story, building that that customer that consumer um, engagement in such a way that produces brand loyalists is the only way to go. And so, what you're talking about is is absolutely true. And we are seeing over this last few months a really a really solid shift from guerrilla marketing to sophisticated, nuanced uh, consumer building and, and, and consumer uh, maturation. You know, one of the things that, that I was thinking about as you were saying that is that we, we have been talking to people uh, about that white space you're talking about because the industry, by and large, under the current federal regulations, under the FCC, they can't advertise on terrestrial radio and they can't advertise on terrestrial television. They can't do that because they would lose their license under the FCC rules. And yet, when I first saw your new updated version of your data software, I said this is the most amazing thing. 
you know, you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you could literally go pick any zip code in the country if you're th- you have a business you're thinking about expanding. And Gary Software will tell you more information in a matter of moments than you could get by ever putting somebody on the ground or a team of people on the ground conducting re- person-to-person uh, reviews. And it's a, it's an amazing piece of software. Everybody should be I'm I'm plugging your software, Gary, but but I believe it's an amazing it's it's I've never seen anything like it. And having been in marketing for 50 years, when I see all the things that we'll do, it takes an enormous amount of risk in the decision making process of where do I go next or what do I offer to my customers based on what's going on in my market. I mean it's 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 just an amazing piece of software, and I encourage our listeners to go to New Frontier Data and look for the Creo's uh, uh, software opportunity. But I agree with you that, that we have a group of people out there that are still living under constraints, the traditional constraints of radio and television, when we, like ourselves, as an alternative media, can advertise the products without jeopardizing anybody's license, but helping expand the marketplace. But I, I just think that your company and your research database is just phenomenal. And, um, and and so how do people get a hold of that, Gary? Well, obviously, uh, if they want to take a look at the Equio platform, it's newfrontierdata.com slash Equio. Um, as far as the consumer data, it's newfrontierdata.com slash nexttech. Uh, everything is available at newfrontierdata.com. And I think it's really important that that you know, market researchers, investors, operators, what Dan was what Dan was referring to is we we did launch in May uh, the capability for a retail operator to to drill down to the corner that their retail shop is on and see their visitors and as also see all of the different types of consumers that live around that. Um the, the products that they prefer communications, you know, the, the marketing communications that they prefer. There's a lot of information wrapped up in, in this SaaS platform that allows, again, everybody from, from the, the, the local uh, regional legislator and regulator to an operator uh, to understand the market in a really, really graphical and easy to understand way. Gary, always a pleasure. We never have enough time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll have you back real soon. Thanks a lot, Dan. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Sure. Yes. If you missed any of this terrific interview with Gary, go to w420radionetwork.com and look in the archive section for not only this interview with Gary, but previous interviews. And uh, we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association, a many-time guest. And we are talking about something that we've all been waiting for in this industry for some time. Cory Booker and other senators have introduced the draft language 
of what a bill might look like for the decriminalization and any other issues on cannabis. It's an important piece of information, so we've invited Morgan on to tell us, what did you learn? Uh, well, I mean, after waiting for uh, months, I think it's uh, it's great that we finally have this, uh, this draft discussion legislation out there in the world so that uh, people can weigh in on it. Um, you know, on the surface, it's an excellent step forward. Um, you know, it uh, would remove cannabis from the schedule of controlled substances and uh, regulate it under the uh, auspices of the FDA, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, and the ATF. Uh, it would uh, allow states to continue to determine their own uh, cannabis policies uh, so that um, cannabis from legal states would not be able to be sold in uh, states where it was still illegal. However, it would not uh, allow them to prevent the transportation of cannabis across state lines so that, uh, you know, people in uh, legal states with uh, prohibition states in between them would still be able to uh, make shipments from one to the other uh, and be able to enter uh, into uh, interstate commerce compacts. Um, it would also create uh, three separate programs to help repair the harms of the war on drugs, uh, primarily providing uh, community reinvestment and funding for uh, small businesses in the cannabis space from marginalized communities. Um, it would create a uh, federal expungement program for nonviolent cannabis uh, offenses and uh, a number of other you know, pretty uh, inside baseball uh, details that we're still really parsing through. Um, I mean, it's a 160-plus page bill, so uh, we're still going through it point by point ourselves and uh, engaging with our members and stakeholders to determine if there's anything that needs to be improved. But uh, the bill sponsors are going to be allowing uh, comments and uh, suggestions on it until September 1st. Well, let, let me ask you a couple of questions about some of the things that you mentioned. Um, this whole criminal justice reform, do do we have any hard estimates of the number of people if they decriminalize it and they expunge convictions? How many people would be released from prison? Uh, I haven't seen any hard numbers on that myself, um, and you know, unfortunately. Uh, this would only impact a very limited number of people because the vast majority of cannabis arrests uh, occur under uh, state and local law. So, um, but I would assume that we're looking at at least a few thousand um, having their uh, uh, people having their uh, records expunged. In terms of people being released from prison, uh, that actually uh, the process laid out in the law takes a little bit more, where you actually have to apply and have your case considered. Um, and unfortunately. Uh, I am not certain of the number of people that are actually in prison uh, purely for nonviolent uh, federal cannabis convictions. Uh, but the number is, you know, pales in comparison when you're looking at uh, um, what happens under the auspices of uh, state and local law. So, but still, a step in the right direction. Yeah, you're, if I if I understood what you were saying, Morgan, you're saying that it appears that there are more people in state and local institutions than there are in federal federal prisons for cannabis crimes. That's correct. Uh, okay. Far. Okay. So the, there's this issue of, and I would love to, I'd love for you to take a moment because this is something that's being banded about. And I'm not sure uh, even myself that I can be as articulate as I should be because I keep hearing different definitions one of the things that's being talked about in this bill and, and talked about around this bill is the, 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 the concept of equity. 
And I'm a money guy. I mean, I've been in the money business for over 50 years. And when I think of equity, I think of ownership. But it's my understanding that that doesn't necessarily mean when they use equity in referring to cannabis, it doesn't necessarily mean ownership of dispensaries. Am I correct on that? Uh, well, I think that uh, everybody's def- uh, definition is probably a little bit different, but, um, you know, the overarching understanding would be that um, the opportunities created by regulated cannabis markets uh, would be accessible and uh, available to uh, the communities that have been uh, most harmed by the war on drugs um, and making sure that uh, – the existing uh, cannabis industry is uh, diverse and inclusive and well represented. Um, so uh, I think that uh, there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, wiggle room when it comes to that definition. But uh, at the end of the day, what we see is that uh, there is very little representation in the cannabis industry, particularly at the ownership and the uh, uh, executive level. Uh, for um, people of color and uh, uh, women and LGBT uh, uh, individuals. So um, that is something that absolutely needs to improve. And, uh, you know, there are a number of different ways that people have proposed doing that at uh, various levels of government. Um, And unfortunately, none of them are really working out the way that uh, they really should be. Um, But I think that there's sort of a learning curve involved here. And, um, as every uh, you know, states and localities start to experiment with different programs to make sure to help improve the inclusivity and representation within the industry, uh, other places are learning from their mistakes. Uh, I mean, we're seeing uh, you know, Illinois uh, just massively expanded their uh, social equity licensing program. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, uh, uh, after a lot of uh, criticism uh, based on their uh, their first round of uh, social equity licensing, so. Um, you know, I think that uh, people are learning from uh, uh, from these processes. Um, you know, I don't exactly know what uh, what victory looks like in this sense, but uh, we're certainly very far from way, away from any conception of it right now. And uh, this uh, this draft bill that uh, um, Chuck Schumer introduced uh, contains a number of measures to try to help with that, um, particularly uh, opening up the uh, small business uh, administration to. Um, uh, cannabis businesses, but uh, with a special emphasis on those owned by uh, women and people of color, um, creating a, uh, a specific uh, entity within the federal government to uh, work on these issues and to uh, disperse funds and grants to uh, various applicants who uh, would meet certain qualifications for uh, social equity applicants, um, and a number of other uh, um, strong provisions that um, get kind of detailed. But I think that one of the uh, most important things uh, to recognize that uh, um, social equity applicants across the board in every state cite access to capital as their number one concern. So um, it's not just, you know, creating carve-outs for licenses. It's not just, uh, you know, doing uh, things to uh, promote uh, uh, POC involvement in the industry, but uh, it's actually providing funds and, you know, removing the barriers to entry uh, for uh, uh, applicants, you know, making sure that – in, in addition to these licensing programs, that uh, things like uh, education and training and uh, lower no-interest loans are available through um, state governments at the onset of these programs and not have to wait for cannabis revenue to actually be generated, which only gives like bigger and predominantly white-owned companies uh, more time to solidify their market share. So, uh, you know, the, unfortunately, the bill doesn't really address uh, – that at the state level, but it does create funding mechanisms for those businesses at the federal level, which is definitely a step in the right direction. So Chuck Schumer said on Wednesday that um, he didn't believe he had 
the votes in the Senate at this time to uh, pass the legislation that he's proposing. Cory Booker came out within minutes of the end of that press conference and said that he would personally, quote, lay down to stop any discussion of cannabis banking reform before we decriminalize cannabis. So we've got a little bit of a challenge there, don't we? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we respectfully disagree with Senator Booker's position, um, although we totally share his uh, um, his desire to pass comprehensive reform as soon as possible. Um, but when you really look at the uh, the people that are actually involved in the industry, um, you know, the uh, the big MSOs and larger companies already have access to banking services. They already have access to capital. Um, but for smaller operators, and particularly those from marginalized communities, uh, being able to access banking services and traditional lending is literally life or death for their businesses. And so I think that delaying that narrowly tailored uh, fix for this issue, not to mention all the public safety issues involved with uh, lack of access to banking, uh, is really doing a disservice to uh, uh, disenfranchised communities that are trying to get involved in this industry. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Senator Booker uh, may not be able to actually do anything to prevent that because he's not uh, the head of the uh, the committees of uh, jurisdiction when it comes to the Senate. But you know, his his words do uh, mean a lot. They uh, they do matter, and they can sway public opinion. They can sway uh, the opinions of other senators. And uh, so we're going to continue working with his office as well as other members of the Senate uh, to. Uh, not only continue to promote more comprehensive reform and try to move that bill down the road uh, in some form uh, and try to find compromise with the Republicans that are absolutely needed in order to pass it and which, you know, currently do not support uh, uh, federal legalization officially, uh, but to simultaneously work on uh, more incremental measures and in particular safe banking so that we can at least uh, do something to level the playing field while Congress debates the best ways to make cannabis legal federally. So uh, Schumer said pretty much from the beginning that he was opposed to bringing banking before decriminalization because he felt if we passed safe banking, it would uh, dilute uh, what they needed to get done on decriminalization. What do you say to that? Well, again, I completely disagree, and I think that the history of uh, cannabis policy reform has shown that uh, incrementalism uh, does work. Uh, you know, I can totally understand the uh, trepidation of a lot of uh, folks, particularly lawmakers and social justice advocates, uh, because incrementalism honestly has not worked in a lot of uh, areas. But in cannabis policy reform, it has worked. And uh, every time a uh, an incremental and narrowly tailored uh, cannabis reform passes, it makes it that much easier for people, and in particular, people who might be on the fence of the issue, to vote for something that's a little bit more expansive. Um, so I think that the uh, the interpretation or the prediction that passing safe banking before comprehensive reform would take the wind out of the sails or decrease momentum for descheduling, I, I just don't think is accurate. Hmm. And I know well, that as an, as an organization, NCIA certainly is not going to sit back on its laurels once banking passes. You know, we're in it for the long haul. Okay. We've been speaking with Morgan Fox, our regular contributor here on America's Cannabis Conversation. Uh, Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. If you go to W420RadioNetwork.com, and if you missed any of today's interview with Morgan, 
you can listen to this great interview by going to the archive section. And uh, we were one day started to count how many times Morgan's been on the show. You can you can listen to all the things that Morgan has said for almost from the beginning of this show. And uh, so it's W420RadioNetwork.com. Go to the archive section. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for New Frontier Data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information it helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. We are literally behind the Redwood Empire Curtain, or the Redwood Curtain. Rich Walkoff, Bob Stefano at your beautiful Mecca here in Humboldt County. You refer to yourself as one of the original High Five, Humboldt High Five. Are you on the Mount Rushmore of Humboldt County weed growers? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would no. put you in the, in the stratosphere in a good way. Yeah, no, we're just here doing our thing. Mm-hmm. A Via Villa Paradiso. And you've been doing this for how long? Uh, well, I've been a homesteader out here for 32 years. And I've been on this property. I bought this property 30 years ago. We're 30 years in here. How, is, how have things changed? I mean, it's a whole generation. Oh, there's been so much change. You mean cons- uh, specifically in the cannabis uh, mm-hmm. world? Yeah, sure. Oh well, we were outlaws back then, and uh, now we're 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 you know we're uh, out <laughs> out in the open. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're legal, as they would say, and you're you're state verified. And California's got very many stringent rules about growing. But back in the day. The, the the rogue growers, and you were one, admittedly so, of one of many. And tell me what it was like then compared to the way it is today. Oh, well, back then you, you had a limited, uh, a limited number of things that you were concerned about or scared about or that were unknowns. There was certainly uh, the cops and the robbers. And, but we had all the normal stuff in terms of agriculture. Uh, pests management, and um, then there's marketing and sales, and not so much marketing, but sales and uh, or whatever. We were uh, we. I had a collective, a medical collective, and um, um, but it it was different. It was very different. I mean, we've all kind of seen this coming. It's been a long time coming because in '96, the uh, first legislation passed around medical use, and um, I have always had this in the in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. We didn't, I don't think we really saw what it was going to be like in terms of the amount of regulation and regulatory hoops that we have to jump through. We're dealing with so many different state agencies um, and municipal level agencies. It's, it's, it's really, uh, really a trip. It's very difficult to kind of explain what the process is like. We, 
we who've been through the process or in the process, when we get together, we just kind of, we kind of, you know, <laughs> look at each other and go, wow, we're, we're surviving this. This mm-hmm. is what it feels like. Yeah, you guys are referred to as legacy growers. You've been here so long. And Humboldt is the holy grail. This is the mother lode. This is the Mecca. This is the Jerusalem. This is the birthplace in many respects. Why is it so special for cannabis grow? Well, right here and where where we're sitting right here is at the very crossroads of the Emerald Triangle. We're at the point of where the three counties, Mendocino, Trinity, and Humboldt County, meet. Like, we're sitting at this table in Humboldt looking out that window at northern Mendocino. And if we could see through the trees to the left, we're looking at the hillside in Trinity County. So there's the actual... The heart, the heart of it, and part of it is is the is the terroir of this area really lends itself to cannabis cultivation. It's just amazing. There's so many different aspects of it. In terms of our appellation that we have here, the Palo Verde appellation, which is in three counties, because it's this is our neighborhood. We just happen to uh, be in three counties. Um, this it gets really hot in the summer. Um, we're at about 1,500, 2,000 foot elevation, so we're above any kind of fog. Uh, it gets cooking hot in the summer, but always gets cool at night. Very, very rarely. Every 10 years, there'll be a heat wave where it stays hot at night. But we'll have a 40, 35 to 40 degree temperature differential every single day. And that's really unusual. And the plants thrive on that cool night. They love the cool night, especially when they're in flower. And um, and then we have the, the, the afternoon winds. We get this amazing wind that comes up about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, all through the summer from the ocean, coolness of the ocean, and the heat of the interior of California just sucks this wind through all the creek valleys and the river valleys, and it just is like this purifying wind. It's really incredible. And the other big thing is our culture here. We're threading to three generations of, of cannabis cultivation here. Our entire neighborhoods, like our, our, our Palo Verde Appalachian, we're like 120 square miles. It's about maybe 150 families, uh, homesteads, 300 people, whatever. But every single person has shared their knowledge with everyone else. We were all in this thing together. I mean... It was pretty hardcore, and but we could talk to each other about it. We shared our genetics. We we shared what worked. Um, our basic practices are a distillation of, of up to forty years. I've been growing for thirty two years, and over time we figure stuff out. We don't necessarily know the science behind it. We're finding that out now, which is kind of exciting, especially around living soils. But um, but we were doing things because it worked, and we had enough. Uh, just just through attrition, we just figured out what worked and what didn't. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of our terroir, of our, our community out here, this region out here. Um, and we got amazing water, just beautiful mountain spring water too. So you've got God's country, perfect weather. It's the uh, harmonic convergence of all these things you're talking about. But talk more about the community. The bonding. One of your colleagues in in the Humboldt High Five referred to the cannabis as kind of a truth serum. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I wonder who that was who said that. That was Rio. Ah, Rio, yeah. Yeah, he gets down to the the soul of things, man. Um, I would say our community, it's it's unusual because you, you can't hide 
here. And that's where the truth serum is. It's like your words and your actions are everything out here. And, you know, what they say, action talks and bullshit walks, you you know? Right. And so even if you don't even like your neighbor, you're still going to be there for your neighbor, you know? And during the camp uh, years when there was a full-on... You know, military style program against us growers out here we would uh, we would come together we would be on the roads and we would be uh, relaying information we had phone trees um our community here is unique in that we have a really strong fire department and our fire department is a community hub for this for this area and that's where we kind of base the appellation off of our fire department's response area we're a humble based fire department but we respond to Trinity County in northern Mendocino County all the way down the Bell Springs Road to where the next little fire department is, which is the Bell Springs Fire Department. That's way into Mendocino. And so we believe our appellation is unique in that it, it crosses county lines. This is a really naturally occurring community out here because of the way the river, the Eel River works and the different road systems and things like that. So I am all about this community. I moved here personally to raise my kids in a community and to raise kids in the country. I, I, never even, I didn't even see a pot plant for the first two years I lived here. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that happened. Yeah, <laughs> and then you quickly uh, learned that that's maybe uh, the most important part of the industry of, of Humboldt County. Well, it certainly was an economy that was going on. It became obvious kind of what, the, what was happening um, I did. I did work for people in the in the business, but I wasn't in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to hire me as a carpenter, as a mechanic, and um, running equipment. So I got to know about it. But I would say it was slowly mm-hmm. for me. I mean, it basically has has been detailed in other in books and in you know the sh- different shows and stuff. It, it allowed that economy allowed people to to do their homesteading dream out here, and to build the uh, the kind of home and homestead that they wanted to be able to to um, take on the challenge of living way far away from anyone. We're so far back in here that we'd be here for weeks and weeks on dirt roads. Yeah, it took us an hour off the beaten path just to get here from Benbow in Northern California. So you literally off the grid, off the, uh, off the radar, solar powered for much of you have hydroelectric here. You, you are living as a modern day pioneer. Well, it's definitely took a while to get to like a comfort level. I mean, there was years where our, our solar was pretty rudimentary. And my very first alternative energy was, was plugging my pickup truck into the house with a cord for my one 12 volt light, you know, and if you used it too long, you couldn't start your truck. Uh, then you have to have a friend come by and give you a jump start. You know, <laughs> we're a little far past that now, but I really do believe in in energy independence. And it's been great catching up with you, Bob Stefano, Villa Paradiso here in Humboldt County, with Rich Walkoff on the W four twenty Radio Network. 
Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information it helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation, and joining us today is our very own cannabis doctor on call, Dr. Jordan Tischler. Today, I've asked him to speak about how his practice has changed because of COVID, and and in addition, uh, additionally, I want him to talk about the professional association that he is a, a founder. So welcome to the conversation, doctor. Oh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Doctor, tell the audience how your practice has changed because of COVID-19. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, Prior to COVID, I had not one but two offices serving different geographic areas. And when COVID came along, I sort of looked at that and thought, you know, I like sitting face-to-face with my patients and talking to them, but that's not really viable at this point anymore. And so, you know, I had dabbled with telemedicine uh, for, you know, occasional patients, particularly ones who are essentially so sick that they couldn't make it to my office. And I had always felt like it was kind of uh, a second choice compared to sitting together in the room. But under the circumstances, I said, look, this is, this is the safe way to go. Let's see how it can work. And so we have completely converted to 100% telemedicine. And I have to say that I actually think it's pretty good. Um, you know, it took me some time to adjust, to, to adjust my style and to get comfortable with it. But in fact, um, you know, I do miss, you know, being in the same room with people. But there are other trade-offs that have turned out to be quite nice. For example, you know, because of the telemedicine, right, obviously it's convenient for people. They don't have to drive into my office and find parking. But really, I get to see people now in their home environments, where they live, where they're comfortable. And that helps me get to know them better and furthers our clinical connection. And I'll tell you a little, a brief little story. I was seeing um, a woman who I'd seen for years. She has breast cancer. She's doing really well. And so we were talking, and she's sitting in her kitchen, and we were um, discussing her care. And her five-year-old son crawled up on her lap and said, Mommy, I need snuggles. And that was a priceless moment, and you don't have that sort of thing in the office. So I've, I've really found this to be a good trade-off. And, of course, um, because it's telemedicine, sort of by the nature of his telemedicine, this has really allowed me to expand the geography of my practice so that we're really no longer limited by geography at all. 
uh, and I've been taking care of people um, from, you know, almost every state in the nation at this point, uh, as well as countries outside of the U.S. And, and that, you know, makes me happy because I can then take good care of people and, and, and spread this, uh, the benefits to, to more people. So it's, it's actually been a really good thing. So let me ask a couple of uh, follow-up questions. First of all, um, have you had anybody, any of your existing patients, balk at having to do it by telemedicine? Um, you know, that's a very interesting subject. Um, I have not had anyone balk at it in the sense of being uncomfortable with its effect on our relationship. Um, that has been a non-issue. What has been an issue is it because I take care of um, ma- many, mostly older folks, um, um, and also some people who, uh, shall we say, are less wealthy. Um, those two groups of folk often have more anxiety and or real difficulty around using the technology. Um, and so I have been doing some more telephone uh, medicine than I would like. And I, I still do think that that's uh, not quite as good as being able to see each other face-to-face and kind of read the body language and the facial expressions. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the thing that matters to me is being able to provide the kind of care that the patient needs. And so if that means I'm using the telephone instead of the telemedicine, then, you know, I do what we need to do. Um, There is a slight issue, um, you know, on a regulatory basis. Um, The uh, permission, if you will, to use telemedicine during COVID has actually, is actually temporary. Um, And uh, I've been sort of assured that that permission will not go away when, when the various executive orders are rescinded. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to continue the telemedicine that way. Um, the telephone becomes kind of dicey and, you know, one really does have to be able to prove that you're maintaining the kind of standard of care that you, you want to provide. And so, you know, I'm working on that and, and, and I think telemedicine is a, is a great approach um, for what I do. You know, look, if I were a surgeon, it would be useless, right? Um, but for what I mm-hmm. do, um, it, it's a great tool. And yeah. I've given up so my the second office, question. I, I, you know, I should mention, um, is that the brick and mortars, I let them go because this is so wonderful. And if, if somebody requires me to go back to a brick and mortar, then I'm going to be scrambling for space. But we'll worry about that. Right. If that Right. So the second question is, you, you kind of began to touch on, on the technology. Do you have any patients who don't have the technology as far as, forget their skills, do they have uh, the, video, the video conferencing capability on their computers? Do you, have you found anybody that just doesn't have it? No, not really. And I think part of it is that um, at this point in history, even if people don't have a laptop, um, or some other sort of, uh, you know, more traditional looking computer, they pretty much all have smartphones. Um, and so the, with a smartphone, you can do all the same stuff, uh, whether we're talking about Zoom or any of the more uh, medically oriented one, you know, you either operate it uh-huh. through an app or through a browser. And so um, the technology really hasn't 
itself been the problem. I think a real problem has been that, you know, there are people who have smartphones who use them as dumb phones and, and really don't um, understand them, uh, you know, their capabilities. And I think really mostly are afraid of it. Um, and, mm. and, and that's something that, you know, I don't understand personally in the sense that I've always embraced technology um, going back, you know, for decades. But I can certainly mm-hmm. uh, empathize with, with its, you know, being, you know, anxiety provoking for people. Um, so my staff and I really try to um, kind of hold people's hands and, and walk them through the process of connecting. Um, and generally speaking, it works. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, uh, we're doing 99% of our visits through telemedicine quite successfully. And then there's this 1% where, you know, for one reason or another, it's not working out. And then, you know, everybody's comfortable with a telephone. So we've been doing that as the backup. It seems to be working just fine. Terrific. Uh, I, I think it's just amazing what you're doing. Uh, in one of our previous episodes, Doctor, you talked about uh, the importance of dealing with uh, a medical professional, somebody like yourself, as opposed to a bud tender who uh, sure. may not necessarily have the skill or the expertise. And and you you stepped up to the plate and formed um, a professional organization for people like-minded with you who are cannabis uh, medical professionals. Talk. We haven't talked about this. I, I'm not sure we've ever talked about it in depth at all, all the times you've been on, so I figured... Now's the time to do it. So tell us about the sure. organization that you formed. So the organization is called the Association of Cannabis Specialists. And, you know, it came about because after I had established my practice, I had friends in this field um, who are not uh, practicing clinicians, but researchers and, and folks like that, who used to sort of laugh at me and say, you know, Jordan, you're the only person who cares this much and really wants to take care of their patients. And frankly, I found that, um, you know, really concerning and somewhat offensive, um, even though it was meant kindly. Um, and, and so I started to say, look, I can't be the only doctor out here who actually cares about their patients. It just can't be, right? So I started this organization with the idea of finding all of my colleagues, whether they're physicians or, or nurse practitioners or whatever other kind of clinician we're talking about, and really gal- galvanizing everybody around this idea that just because it's cannabis or weed, man, right, doesn't mean that we need to throw away all of the important relationship that we have with our patients. And, and, and also, as we talked about um, in other segments, that, you know, there are right ways and less right ways of, of using this stuff. And we want to make sure that people get the best benefit and the least risk. And so we have uh, now developed into an organization that's uh, not just national in the U.S., but international. Um, and we provide a lot of educational services for, for our members that include, um, you know, science and how to uh, in various forms. We provide mentorship for people who are newer to this kind of medicine. Um, And then we also are deeply involved sort of as a policy advocacy group, because what we realize is that in order for us to do this well, we need the government, whether we're talking about states or or national, 
um, to really provide us the tools that we need in order to make sure that our patients are getting what they need and not getting their arms twisted and all that sort of thing. So we've been deeply active right. in that um, and providing guidance to the FDA and the DEA and the CDC, um, as well as state governments uh, and filing amicus briefs to various courts when things come up. So we've we've kind of had our fingers out there in trying to set policy or, or guide policy to, uh, to support patients and their clinicians. Well, we're almost out of time, and I have two more questions. The first question is, what type of person should become a member of your group? What uh, kind of practice? Question. Well, you know, we're, we're focused mostly on clinicians, um, so if somebody is not a clinician and they want to join, we certainly welcome them. Um, and they would have access to all of the benefits, but, you know, of course, what that would be, you know, what that would be, how that would be meaningful to them is obviously a personal choice. Um, but really right. what we're focused on is people who, um, people who practice cannabis medicine as sort of a focus of their clinical life and also uh, people who, you know, might be a primary care doctor or a neurologist who are not going to practice cannabis medicine, but who want to or feel the need to become educated so that they understand where cannabis fits as a tool for their patients and, um, and then, you know, be able to refer to a trusted colleague who is a cannabis specialist. And so I think that there are sort of two groups of clinicians uh, that we're really targeting that way. You told me the last time you and I talked about this uh, uh, off air that it, your your membership is growing rapidly. Yes, and we're actually um, a, right this this month. We're going to introduce a brand new website that's going to streamline um, uh, membership uh, administration and access to the various member benefits. We've also added a whole new slew of member benefits, including more educational resources, uh, three new journals, uh, a whole bunch of those sorts of things. Um, so we're about to start a huge membership drive uh, in this month uh, going on to the, the beginning of the year. And so I think, you know, uh, the more we can reach out to clinicians and other interested parties, the more we can swell the ranks. That gives us more clout in Washington in particular. Uh, sure. And obviously it disseminates the science and the information better uh, to the clinicians and they're through, you know, to, to their patients so that everybody's getting the benefit that they need. We've been having a conversation with Dr. Jordan Tischler, our cannabis doctor on call. Doctor, tell us two things. How do people get a hold of you to talk about telemedicine, and how do they get a hold of you and your new group? Great. Well, let's start with the group, the Association of Cannabis Specialists. The website is cannabis-specialist.org. I know it's a little bit of a mouthful, but again, it's cannabis-specialist.org. And um, as I mentioned, we have a website now, but the better one is coming shortly. So um, visit the website and then come back. And Thank you the for taking part in America's Cannabis awesome. Conversation. Again, cannabis to hear this show in its entirety or to hear any of our archive shows, you know, log on to AmericasCannabisConversation.com and tune in for the next installment of America's MD Cannabis Conversation. Again, inhalemd.com. 
and you can reach out to me directly through there. There are also over 100 articles on various cannabis medicine topics for you to peruse, so I look forward to hearing from you. As always, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for this wonderful insight and, and perspective. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. If you didn't hear all of this terrific interview with Dr. Jordan, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section and listen to this and other many appearances of Dr. Jordan on the show. AmericasCannabisConversation.com. We're part of the W420 Radio Network, and each week we provide you with information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and recreational cannabis industry. You'll hear from industry leaders, elected officials, local experts, detractors, and more. Learn how to build your own cannabis business, how to grow the product, what's legal, and where it's legal. Tune in each week to hear updates from America's Cannabis Conversation. W420radionetwork.com.